You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. You are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show on this beautiful September Sunday morning. Welcome everyone. I am Chloe Foster pushing the wheelbarrow this morning and along for the ride is a panel of lovely people and experts in their field. Evan Golke of Ochre Landscape, Graham, Graham Morrison, our fruit tree expert and Bronwyn Cole, fruit fly expert from Agribusiness Yarra Valley. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. Very smooth ride. What do you do? You tip us out at the end? Yeah. Is it- yeah, and just be on with it. Yeah. <laughs> I must start off with some weather chat. How nuts has September been at the moment? Amazing. Amazing. This I feel like this happens a lot, and I bang on about it in classes, and I'm being proven right at the moment. Because August ends on a mild note and everyone gets excited for springtime. And then September comes along and it hits the fan. It's a mixed bag. Flip a coin every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The other day, I think it was the coldest, the second coldest day for the year in in September, you know. (laughs) It was a shocker, wasn't it? uh, What what was that Friday? Yeah. Terrible day. You see some of the poor fruit trees, you know, Bursting their buds and start staying to try and come out, but they'd like a bit of heat. <laughs> I was I was thinking about fruit tree flowers with that wind the yeah, other day because so chill, yeah. quite a lot of them are flowering yeah. at the moment. A lot of things yes. are flowering yeah. earlier. Yeah. Potential for them to be damaged before they've been yeah. pollinated. Yeah, Sp- particularly frost. If you get a fr- frost that, that knocks out the little stigma in the flower, and uh, you, know, you, you don't you don't get your crop, and mm. that that's been upon us as I'm coming up from being an orchardist, and probably. A little bit, you know, with the buildings that come come up around the area, Doncaster now, it's a little bit warmer than it used to be. And of course, global warming comes upon us as a reality. Yeah. Mm. yeah. At home, we lose a lot of our plum flowers to the rain. Yeah. yeah. So, and they they're knocked off before they can 
get pollinated. Mm. Well, I'd knocked off or potentially even some fungus can get in. Yeah. Because we don't, mm. they're, they're ornamental garden trees. We don't necessarily spray Ornamental fungus. plums, right. Well, as in we keep them ornamentally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and not commercial production, basically. Yeah. But, yeah, it could be sunny and the bees can be out one day and the next day they're drenched and not... Mm. Not effective at all. Yeah, I guess some ways it's fairly typical spring, though, isn't yeah. it? In that, yeah. in that it's very, it very, it varies a lot. Yeah. You get very cold mornings where you might get the frost, and then you get a, get a lot of rain. I mean, October is traditionally our wettest month. Yes, um, yeah, and I think September is probably not that far behind. No, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah it's certainly yeah, up and down, yeah, which yeah. keeps you on your toes. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, and we were just talking about the fact we both have wood wood heaters in our homes, you know. So it's yeah. one day you're stocking it up, and the next day you're <laughs> chucking it all out. <laughs> uh, recently, I'm a, I'm a bowler these days in my, my retirement, and. Uh, uh, up at the club, they said, "Oh, you're going on holiday, Graham. Well, they get away from this terrible, t- t- terrible winter of Melbourne. Where are you going to? Oh, Iceland." <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me about Iceland before the show. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Tell yeah. us about it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. No, uh, uh, it was you know very popular from the tourist tourist perspective these days. It's all picked up. We go for a, a big. Uh, uh, swim, swim in this acre, two to two, two, two acres of swimming pool. It's geothermal heating, and uh, be, because I'm, uh, you know, like my, uh, like I am, I'm a fr- fruit and vegetable ed- 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 edible plant person, and uh, we, we saw saw this uh, touristy thing available where you go out, way at the back of uh, the beyond, really. And uh, they they had a glass house there with with uh, they grow tomatoes, four for four four different varieties of tomatoes, the little ch- cherry ones, some elongated pear shaped ones, and that, and they they they, they put they're about ten 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 thousand plants they that they have in there, and it's all <coughs> geothermally he- heated, wow. and uh, ma- ma- massive place, and you you I. Couldn't believe that that would be the case, but they're taking a ton of fruit off that uh, production every day, and uh, that that's about three hundred sixty-five tons of tomatoes come out there. They supply all certainly Iceland, and they export them all over the, uh, over the world. Wow. It's just lovely to have that free, if you like, heat that's yeah. coming coming come, bub- bubbling up from underneath, and they they. The, the there's hot water down the down there. I think it's about at least a kilometre down, but uh, they, they, it, it comes up and they separate. The steam goes one way and the 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 water goes the other way. The water is used to heat natural natural water, which they irrigate with, of course. Mm. And and uh, and and the, the the it's hot water, so it goes around in pipes in the base base of the the the, the greenhouse, and and then uh, of course, as you would would appreciate in Iceland, the uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, l- lighting is pretty poor in the winter time. I think it's only three or four hours of sun- mm. sun- sunshine they get. Consequ- consequently, they have to have, to have electric light sort of thing to get the photosynthesis going on the uh, the, the t- 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 tomato plants. And uh, this is uh, again the the uh, 
the steam that comes up uh, rotates to, to turbines that they get, get the electricity and have the light there as well. How, how but, big uh, are the greenhouses where they're growing yeah, the tomatoes? I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, at least an acre. I think it would be more like it's a big. It's, it's a big. They grow cucumbers as well. Mm. They turn it into a tour, touristy thing. If everybody listening over the air here would like to, a good good place to go, it's very interesting. And you go in there. They've got tomato soup that they make. They've got <laughs> they've got a little bakery where they've got lovely big lo- loaves of bread. They've got cu- 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 cucumber salsa. salsa. Oh, <laughs> so you have a have a good food. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, isn't it a great thing? And we went to Iceland. We saw the big power things where they uh, again kept, kept capture this uh, uh, geothermal uh, heat. Uh, yeah, making the, the most of it. Most to, to, greenhouses. To, to, to right, yeah. That, you know, yeah. as as the future goes, goes you on you and it's it's uh, so, so much a need in the future, and there must be other parts where you know they could. Make use of that. I'm sure. Sure, in a big world, there's, there's areas like Rotorua, maybe in in New Zealand and other parts where we're fairly close to the the hot underneath. Mm. Yeah. Well, certainly, in, um, if you've ever driven up to Port Augusta, um, just I don't know, oh, yeah. fifty k short of Port Augusta, oh, yeah, there's yeah. a there's a huge greenhouse there on yeah, the left yeah. side, and yes, I, yes, it's yes, called yeah. something like Sunkiss or something like oh, that. Yes, I, think yeah. I was just trying to Google it, I couldn't <laughs> find it. But um, like the it, it yeah, it is a huge glass house yeah. with a huge tower, yeah. uh, like a chimney. And I think the idea there is that they grow they grow tomatoes, um, and they they generate their own power by the heat uh, coming out of the glasshouse, going up the chimney, turning turbines. Um, so I think they actually desalinate their own water as well, with with that power that they produce. So there is a little bit of that sort of thing around in Australia. Um, good to hear. Very good. And nice to hear. Yeah, greenhouses being heated in by you know less artificial means as well. Usually there's oh, yes. big boilers and a lot of gas used to heat greenhouses, which is not the most yeah, yeah, yeah. sustainable way to do yeah, it. No, so no. a couple yeah, of different yeah. ways. Yeah, mm. right on the other, that reminds me, Chloe, the uh, no insects around outside because it's so cold sort of thing, so mm. they've got too much worry there. <laughs> but uh, again, for people out there, in, in, in listening land, if you've got a glass house and you d- decide to grow tomatoes in there, you might find that you're not getting any tomatoes. And the, the reason being is that poll- the pollinating insects are not getting in, into your glass house. Mm. And so they, I think from Holland, they import, uh, I think it's, a, it's about 60 hives of bumblebees. <laughs> and so the bumblebees are doing all the pollinating around into the place. Into the Iceland glass yeah, houses. into this yeah. Iceland glass house that I was yep. talk, 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 talking about. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And uh, big, 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 uh, <laughs> big, 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 big guys going around. They tell me that the females do all the pollinating, the, male, the males are the loafers, they don't do any of the pollinating. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you hear anything about how they deal with pests and diseases? No, they, they seem to think, you know, very... <coughs> uh, what 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 what's the word? Disciplined mm. in making sure that anything that comes in there is, is not going to be in, in contaminated with any disease. But I think very little disease, uh, and certainly no insecticides put out because they're not going to want to kill their bumblebees. Mm. And uh, as as they say on the literature, uh, that's uh, pretty well. Uh, 
what was eco friendly sort of thing. It's you know they they they, they, don't, they, they, they look look after that side of it. Mm. They'd be very they'd be right jumping on. But it's amazing, amazing. You know, through all these little, little, little tomatoes on the thing, some of the vines actually grow grow, grow to ten meters long. They said, and they grow up to a certain length, and then then they undo the things and wind them down. And, and and around the, the the base of the you see it wound around in circles sort of thing as you've brought it down sort of thing and they 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 they, they keep 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 on organising it like that. It was mm. amazing. Mm. Just a husband and wife team decided it was a bright idea and got a bit of uh, agricultural scientists to help help them along the way. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it's uh, just uh, I thought it was, it was amazing for me, you know, to see out in that wild outside there. There's of lava rock that's solidified and jagged, all you know, t- terrible looking country sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, you know, did yeah. you get to see any volcanoes up there? Yeah, while we were there, they said on one day there was 200 uh, earthquakes, <laughs> so, seismic things that happened, you know. <laughs> I didn't get to any I think soon after we had left the place, there was an active volcano actually erupted there. <laughs> so. That's my dream one day, to walk on or near a, a volcano that's no way Hawaii's the most affordable option for me at the moment <laughs> but yeah well not while it's totally exploding but mm. the lava that comes out of Hawaiian most Hawaiian volcanoes mm. is the really thick slow moving stuff so you see photos of, and videos of people yeah. standing right next to him. Yeah, that's right. Everyone's sh- d- d- not shaking d- their heads. <laughs> burn our producers with me. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go for a trip. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talking about that way of growing tomatoes, I've been growing yeah. my tomatoes yeah. in that method in oh, recent yeah. years, and this is the time to sort of start preparing it. Have you got a volcano under your? Yeah, house? volcano <laughs> and geothermal. Yeah. yeah. No, no. This idea of growing them as long vines and then laying them down. So the idea is you you, you just get a, get some really tall tomato stakes or something, put them at each end of your bed um, and run a string or, or another bit of timber across the top and then using old fencing wire or coat hangers or whatever, you you get uh, – I, I often use that um, builder's bricky, brickies line, you know, yeah. that string because re- it lasts yeah, a really long yeah, time and you wrap that around the, your, your little wire contraption and then you hook that on the top and you connect it, just whack a stake in the ground or, or, or run a, a string along the ground and peg it down and put the bottom to that. So you have this whole series of strings yep. going up vertically and they might be 500 mils apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you plant at the base of each of those. And as they grow, you, you, you attach them to the string and then you move the strings along the, the top string. So the vines get longer and longer and they end up, the bottom of them lay on the ground, which is the exact same theory as what you're talking about, that they wind them around. So once they've fruited and so on, you don't need that bit. You always need the new bit. So you're laying them down and so your whole crop sort of marches one way or the other um, as you sort of move them along. Yeah, it's a really neat way of growing. And the other good thing about doing it on strings is that the rosellas can't sit on them. So, you know, you put a tomato steak in, the tomato, the rosellas just sit on the top, one-footed and chew with the other foot. Whereas if you've got them on strings, particularly if you have a string on the top, so there's not a solid bar on the top. My, my chair's really squeaky, That's isn't right. it? <laughs> 
everyone. There's a squeaky chair. <laughs> There's a squeaky chair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 just a really good way to keep the birds off them as well without having to net them. Or, or have you taken any photos of what you've no of doing this? No, this I season. will this season. Can you do it this season. I'd love to see Onto it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really now, very simple. Would there be inventive there? Yeah, it is. <laughs> would there be varieties more suited to growing that way? Because some of them are a bit more shrubby. Yeah, you don't want others. a shrubby one. Yeah. No, no, so, you want an old-fashioned one. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. A, a gross lister or, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Or I, I like the beefsteak tomatoes personally. Mm. So I saw people at the hardware store buying tomatoes yesterday and I thought, oh, God, it's a bit early. A little bit early. <laughs> it's a bit early. A little bit of sunshine and people are going crazy yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, you just hold off, you know, yeah. spend yeah, the next sure. month because I just getting sit, your bed sit ready. Because there, the tomato plants and the weeds start to grow, you know. Yes. Yeah. They don't do much at all in the next you know, three or four weeks. Yeah. No, and you gain nothing yeah. no, by putting them in early. No, well, you, just, you know, yeah, because they sit yeah. there, they don't move. Yeah, because no, no, the soil's too cold. You yeah, need, yeah, yeah, what is it, 18 so, degrees before yeah, they start to get yeah, moving yeah, in the soil? So it's just a little bit nippy at the moment. You're better off, like you were about to say before, doing your soil prep and making sure that you know, you've know you nailed that, there's compost in there. There's a lot you can do there. Yeah, too right. Yeah, now's the time. Yeah. Not, not a day before you want to plant them. <laughs> well, that is a bit of a segue into some community announcements. So bugger planting the tomato plants right now. Get out. There's a lot of springtime events on. Um, so I'm just going to – I've got a couple of community announcements uh, for listeners this morning. Uh, the final day of the Australian Plants Expo – um, held by the Eltham Group of the Australian Plant Society is on today from 10 until 4 um, at Eltham Community Centre on Main Road in Eltham. I went yesterday and I swore to myself walking in I would not buy any plants and I've come out with nine tubes. <laughs> anyway, uh, the 14th of September is the Plant Trust AGM and Plant Sale. Uh, if you want any more information for that, um, contact Stephen Ryan, give him a call at Dixonia Rare Plants. Uh, it is a free event and they're having an auction of plants that night. So there could be some really weird and wonderful things that you get from that. 16th and 15th of October is the Tesla Tulip Festival. The Oh, I'm getting my dates mixed around the, the wrong way. Anyway, that's October. Coming back to September, the 23rd is the Alpine Garden Society of Victoria Conference. We've been talking about this on the gardening show for the last, or well, probably month or two. Um, everyone is so excited for it. The tickets would be getting close to being sold out now. It's really popular. It is really reasonably priced, and there's some absolute experts coming out for that. So jump on to the Alpine Garden Society of Victoria um, website to book tickets through that. The 23rd and 24th of October is the Yay Garden Expo. Also on that weekend is the Australian Native Orchid Spring Show in Mount Waverley. 23rd of October as well is the Melbourne Clivia Group Expo at East Burwood Uniting Church. East Burwood and Mount Waverley are very close to each, each other, so you could do a double whammy then. Yeah. October 7 and 8 is the Macedon Garden Lovers Fair and the Lardner Park, sorry, the 14th and 15th is Lardner Park Garden and Home Expo as well. Um, 
there's still a lot of other events which I won't go through because I'm starting to lose my voice. Uh, the Yarra Valley Spring Plant Fair and Garden Expo is on from the 11th on the 11th and 12th of November from 10 until 5 p.m. each day, uh, 125 Quail Road, Wandon. The last community announcement for events is the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society Flower Festival on the 28th and 29th of October. There is so much coming up and it's so pleasing to see so many planty gardening events happening again. If anyone missed those dates, um, please just ring up uh, our producers um, and they can get a message for me to announce them again if you need it. Now, one other announcement to make. Our beautiful friend and my co-host, um, A.B. Bishop has written a book with landscape architect Philip Withers. It's called Naturescapes and it has only recently been released. They are doing a talk or a little event on Wednesday the 27th of September at the Bookbird Bookshop. It's an in-conversation evening with A.B. and Philip celebrating the book held at KO Creative Studio in Geelong. It's $33. Your ticket price includes local wine, non-alcoholic drinks and cheese. Always go for the food. If you want tickets, go to the website and follow the links to book. So the website is theko.com.au. So that's T-H-E-K-O.com.au. On Thursday, the 28th of September, um, AB is continuing celebrating biodiversity month and presenting a workshop for the city of Casey called Habitat, increasing biodiversity in your backyard. She's sharing her knowledge about the various elements that attract and support local wildlife. If you're keen to see more birds, butterflies and other critters, head along with the area of your garden in mind and how you might want to design it and you can learn how to design a habitat specific zone in that particular space this is a free event so it's being held by the city of casey tickets um, you must book it on eventbrite.com.au when you go onto the eventbrite website knock into the search function habitat increasing biodiversity in your backyard and it's being held at the cranburn west community hub in cranburn so that's thursday the 28th of september and that's a committee announcements for this morning. I'm going to open up the phone lines to welcome our listeners in. If you have any questions, we've got some fruit tree, fruit pest and disease experts in the studio this morning. And uh, Evan and I can cover the rest if you need it. <laughs> the number is 94190155. Our text line is 0488809855. And our email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au if you want to send any photos because we can't accept them on the text line. Um, or if you are a podcaster and you, you catch up with the show later, you want you have a question for us, just send us an email, gardening at 3cr.org.au. Talking about creating habitat, um, the Ochre Landscape Director of Wellbeing is a black Labrador. <laughs> and the black Labrador lives, um, sleeps just inside the office door 
And so there's always a lot of black fur. You know, Labradors <laughs> drop a lot. So the director's job, though, in spring <laughs> is to leave a lot of hair there. So we've had a little thornbill and a little wren both come into the office <laughs> collecting <laughs> collecting the, the, the director's uh, fur and uh, obviously taking out and making nests. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just must have the most snuggly little nests. <laughs> lovely. That'd be gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> so birds are really active at the moment, super active. Yeah, yeah the little thornbills singing away every morning. Even this morning when I left, it was just on light. It was carrying on like a pork chop. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, they're, really amazing. They're gorgeous. Little, the little birds, they're just mm. such beautiful animals. Yeah, they, they really are. Goodness. Uh, you spoke about the the book, B- 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 Bishop, what's her name? A.B. Bishop. A.B. Bishop, yep. that's right. Her yeah, Habitat yeah. book. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. I was wondering whether the Evan had... Have you written a book at all? No, no. no I, think <laughs> you sh- I, think like, you, I think you should. That sounds like way too much I'd hard like to work. see a book written by Evan, actually. <laughs> of all your be, adventures and musings. Very short. <laughs> You've got so much in that head of your head, you right. also tell you. <laughs> Bronwyn, you're being blanketed this morning. I haven't written a book. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Maybe I should. Hey, mo- why not? Why not? We're actually in the process of developing an e-learning platform for our fruit fly messaging for once this program has um, discontinued being funded, which is on the cards. And we're also in the process of revamping some of the books about Queensland fruit fly, so updating them with more information now that we know more. But hopefully that will be my attempt at writing a book or a start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fruit fly is becoming an issue in Melbourne, isn't it? Uh, when I walked in, I thought you had your ballet taffeta dress <laughs> on and it was all sort of puffed up in front of you on the desk. But For those of you listening at home, I am not wearing it. <laughs> As it turns out, it's a fruit fly net, is it? Is that- it's a fruit fly net. So I thought I'd bring it in to show everyone in the room and describe it to you guys because as you might appreciate, this is going to stop the pollinators getting into your fruit yeah. trees if you get it on too early because it's, it's a two-mil yes. weave. This one's actually yeah, yeah. finer. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, mm. But obviously bird netting doesn't mm. normally mm. stop the pollinators getting in. No, I've got to But go you need it to be true, this fine sure. to stop yeah, the Queensland yeah. fruit fly getting yeah, in. And yeah, what right. we're noticing, yeah, yeah, yeah. since I started this job in 2017, um, <laughs> We didn't really know much about fruit fly in Victoria or Melbourne. Mm. And well, there was definitely none in the Yarra Valley. And so our messaging was all about, well, just keep an eye out. Don't bring it in. Let me know if you do see it. Yeah, sure. And this is what damage it can do. So it's really important yeah. if you find it. Yeah. And then over the years, we got more and more reports of it being in apricots right throughout Melbourne and we thought what mm. what how yeah. and it turned out that back in 2008 yeah. there was actually some fruit fly detected in Melbourne and yeah, the about, Department yeah. of Agriculture at the time were obligated to eradicate it of which they did yes. and it wasn't until much much later it was in northern Victoria that we eventually declared Queensland fruit fly established in Victoria but since then since about 2019 I've learned more and more about Queensland fruit fly right throughout the Melbourne suburbs 
in particular the northern suburbs, mm. Eltham and Greensboro, which is my first experience of dealing with fruit fly. It's really bad through there. Yeah, and mm. then what we're finding, there's more stories, like some of the community gardens that I've worked with right from inner Melbourne right throughout the Yarra Valley, even Knox Community Gardens are suspicious that they've found Queensland fruit fly. And so now it's past that point of just let me know if you have it. It's actually taking or needing to take preventative steps and get on board early with your prevention it's yeah. because uh, just putting a bit of fruit fly bait out or just a fruit fly trap, it's not going to stop fruit fly getting into your product. So for the average punter, what are we looking for? You're looking for a small, tiny little pinprick on your fruit because you're probably not going to see the insect yourself. You're probably going to see that breeding site where she's laid her eggs in the fruit. And then once you open your fruit, and it's usually in apricots, you peel them open and you see creamy white maggots crawling around the pip yeah. inside the fruit. And that's when you know you've been, you've been got and you probably should have done something about it before you knew that you needed to, ha- to do that. Mm. So it's about designing your gardens right with a structure or some form of protection, knowing that if they're not there yet, they're just around the corner. Sustainable McLeod Gardening. I think, it, I think they're a community garden. They've netted and they've had produce for the first time in five years last season. Wow. Now, you want to get the timing of this netting right because yeah. is one of the ways to try to deal with fruit fly is to get to know the life cycle of it. So when would you recommend that the netting be put on? Before you think that it needs to be put on. <laughs> so, uh, as when so the flowers start to drop off? After, after pollination, let the fruit set. Do you, I would do thinning so that you can get in under there and work, work around the tree and do your thinning. And then I would definitely get some fruit fly netting on. Um, we, we do know of some peaches in the outer eastern suburbs that were still as green as golf balls and they got hit last year. So greener than a lot of my expert colleagues have ever seen before and they were shocked because they were still... um, thought they would have to be ripe sort of thing before they have a go. We're taught that you you need to start your fruit fly protection and fruit fly is a risk from when the fruit is ripening. Ripening, yeah. As as an orchardist's daughter, (laughs) you would appreciate it. It's when that fruit grows from green and that background colour turns a bit yellow. Yeah, sure. That's when they traditionally would hit. But these these peaches were as green as green and they got hit. So my message there is after fruit set, before ripening. I'm going to show you guys a video and I'll send it through to Liz. So... Oh, oh yeah, where's yeah. that from? Fruit fly. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the tree's gone now, Bronwyn. Good. Um, <laughs> in a peach tree at Fruit our orchard larvae. at Melbourne Poly Fairfield. Yeah. So it's just, that's just protein, is it? Is that how it goes? So essentially what's happening there is that that rot in that fruit, so Chloe's holding a picture of a rotten nectarine with crawling maggots throughout it. So essentially those larvae have to get from these little tiny larvae that hatches out of an egg and it has to get about nine mil long and nice and plump and have enough energy stores to then morph into the to the adult fly after it goes through its pupa phase. So it's then got to get bigger. How's it going to get bigger? Well, it needs your, your carbohydrates and protein like we do to grow. So in that fruit, there's yeasts and bacteria creating 
more rot. So that's breaking down that flesh so that larvae can suck up that brown rot jelly. So in that, how do you get protein? Well, that's the byproduct of that fermentation that's happening. And there's always yeast extracts essentially left. So that's, that's that protein that's in there that they're getting off. And then as adult flies, they, they search around your garden and you know, being a rainforest insect, they're used to living off yeasts and yeast fungi and extracts and microbes at their food source when they're, when they're an adult fly. So a lot of people think that fruit fly eat fruit and they fly, but they actually don't eat the fruit and they actually don't fly very far. <laughs> <laughs> they were once known uh, 100 years ago as the peach maggot. Right. Oh, really? Probably more an apt name for them because that's how people would recognise them. Well, this this is a a, a blue flesh, purple flesh peach that they're on. That, but they don't seem to have gotten into any other fruit tree in the orchard. Just this one, which I reckon, and that's why I want to talk to you about. Perhaps the this is an earlier season fruiting peach, and it just might work in really well with the life cycle of the fruit fly. Going possibly about. they're very opportunistic, so they will go from one fruit to another they usually go back to prefer the fruit that they were born and raised in a comfort zone as we all have those but they will progress so they'll progress from locusts and cherries and plums early in the season yeah through to your pears and apples and pome fruits and then later on into quince and then into citrus and then by the you know with a, a citrus in melbourne like you've brought some in today graham yeah, they're, yeah, they're, sure. they're right now and it won't be long before we get locusts and cherries back so they they do jump from one to the other and I guess it's just whatever's ripe at the time that they invaded that area so they're very opportunistic so obviously it's more than that though isn't it because when you drive through a fruit fly zone you you need to ditch everything including capsicums and um, Mm. eggplants and so on so it's so we we need to be watching for it on all sorts of plants yeah not many people (coughs) recognize capsicums and tomatoes as fruit Mm. but Mm. they are Mm. and um, believe it or not I've spoken to so many people that tell me that they don't need to worry about this because they don't have fruit trees in their backyard but once I get talking to them then I find out that they've got a lemon tree and they grow tomatoes (laughs) (laughs) yeah very very diverse Mm. so uh, is it is it temperature related? So you know, thinking climate change, you know, warmer winters, is that going to be an assistance to they, these critters, or do they do they overwinter well now? They overwinter well now, and they probably have done for a while, um, but we may not have necessarily felt it down here in Melbourne. So they've they've definitely made good use of the that concrete jungle you spoke about mm-hmm. before being a bit warmer. Yeah. Um, we we certainly don't have the the colder cold enough winters that my grandpa used to talk about. I remember asking him when I was a little kid, what's this? Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to dump our fruit going into that fruit fly exclusion zone? It's, oh, you won't have to worry about that. It's too cold down here. Mm. (laughs) Well, Pa, guess what I'm doing now? (laughs) My father said exactly the same thing. They shouldn't worry about it. It's warm up in Queensland. They thrive down here in Melbourne. It's too cold for them. So they (laughs) are temperature related. Even their life cycle length between when they're first born to when they're ready to mature and breed themselves is temperature dependent so they they just go faster the further north and a little bit slower down here and actually it's a really interesting point that what i've found since i've worked in this area a lot of the fruit fly baiting advice such that sticky protein food with an insecticide in it that you can dabble around the leaves in your garden as a treatment for queensland fruit fly 
a lot of the advice that we read in the literature says for two weeks after you first detect it. That's fine in further north because that's where their life cycle starts to, to change again. They've usually moved on. That, that The new, um, new generation is up and coming. Mm. What I've found is that I've grown some fruit fly larvae out and it's actually taken 17 or 18 days before they've emerged. So mm. if you're doing a fruit fly response with fruit fly bait, you would actually mm. need to have a weekly baiting program extend past 18 days yeah, right. in order to be effective. Mm. So again, this is about that literature we're updating mm. is making sure, sure. That, that that advice is appropriate for the southern extremities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. As uh, climate change gets worse, it'll probably be more, it'll make, make life more happy for the, uh, for the fruit flies. Yeah, I was just listening to yeah. radio the other day and they're talking about all the mosquito-borne diseases in Melbourne. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, that's why fruit flies here. <laughs> yeah, that's sure. yeah. Next we'll be going jacarandas. Oh, hang on, we already are. <laughs> it, you, it did used to be one of the perks of gardening in Melbourne is that in our mm. winter was cold that it knocked out a lot of pests and diseases and, yeah. you know, it was a control in true, itself. Sure, the frost I remember when yeah. I was younger, you know, that used to be the case, but it's really, yeah. it's really not anymore. Yeah. You're sounding old. I know. So, I'm, like, I'm so, sounding old now. I'm not the, I'm not the young gardening kid anymore. Know, back in my day. <laughs> yeah. No, back in my day when I was a little child. So what, what sort of temperatures are we talking about? That Like what, what's going to help in the way of temperatures? What would you need? Would you need You'd need street? a giant iceberg <laughs> and yeah, probably would... some really strong, subtly freezing cold winds to blow them back up to Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> no, so fruit fly will breed when the sunset temperature is about 15 degrees or warmer. Okay. So if, right. it's, if it's warm enough for you to have a, a beer or a champagne on the back porch after work, it's warm enough for fruit fly to breed and that's our trigger point that we need to know to start to take action maybe some um, preventative baiting and making sure our fruit is being harvested because if they're if they're breeding then obviously we're going to have problems in fruit later on and this baiting um is it is it something that's readily available to the common gardener or yes. is it a commercial product no it's commonly available the one that's commonly available to the your household gardener is um, already has the spinosad which is the active ingredient or that's organically based inside it so mm. it's ready to go just add water and then you put it in a, a pump pack as per the instructions on the back of the packet and then you just spot spray around the garden it's not a cover spray it's just a spot spray commercial people use it um they obviously buy it in bulk and some of them add their own insecticide of choice and some use the organic premix as well. So. And so when you say spot spray, so that, that's just attracting them free feed. with a pheromone or something? No, it's just a free feed. free feed. And so does it attract anything else? Not normally because it's that specific uh, yeast extract that's in there mm -hmm. that's quite ah. specific to that Queensland fruit fly. And right. there's even discussion in the commercial community as to whether Mediterranean fruit fly, which is the, the fruit fly of mm. economic importance in Western Australia and not here, um, and versus Queensland fruit fly and what their flavour preferences are. Mm. So that's how specific mm. it is. For mm. example, if a bee was to walk over the leaf and through the droplet of protein bait with the insecticide in it, it might <coughs> not have a pleasant ending. But in the name of the great name of numbers, mm. we're, we're mm. far better off doing this targeted spot of bait on a leaf throughout the garden 
in comparison to the other solution, which is to cover spray it with a uh, a very ancient pesticide mm. that mm. kills everything. So it is a yeah. it is a better approach. But so if you're a southern Queensland gardener. <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing in their gardens? Oh, which no, they they're, just not been grow- do- they're just not growing anything. I took myself right. up to Stanthorpe yeah. and, and I went from Stanthorpe to Bundaberg and well, what are you guys doing? And the answer is nothing. Like, well, that's why Victoria's got fruit vine. Yeah. So, so, so they're not y- growing fruit. They're not growing fruit. Like, not like, growing vegetables. Not, or not so in backyards. And, and commercial growers have sort of grown out of it or, or changed Changed yeah. from particularly changed out of growing stone yeah, fruit. Sure. Um, yeah, the only yeah. stone fruit that I knew of mm. up there was a, quite an isolated property, twenty or thirty kilometres away from the township of Stanthorpe, mm. and they told me about their rigorous baiting program and all of their trapping that they're doing with the pheromone traps and yeah. um, all of the actions that they're taking. But it was essentially exclusion by distance. Yeah, so mm. yes, so um, the, the people in Mildura that are still, and, and even Cobham and Shepparton, you know, those northern Victorian areas that we know of that are part of the project that I'm involved with, they're switching to netting. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exclusion. So it's that physical barrier, it's chemical-free, it's reusable, and it guarantees them a crop. And actually, um, my colleague in Mildura, I went to visit her last year, and she was showing me the, the rewards that the gardeners were receiving for having done the diligence of putting a netting on. And so commercially they're doing that as well? No, no. no. Commercially they have to rely on that protein baiting. They have to rely on having the right variety of fruit in that area so that they can harvest it early enough. They do use uh, insecticides in some places, um, but they'd prefer, if they didn't have to, they wouldn't. The, The baiting program, and when everyone baits... That's when you can start to have an impact on the yeah, fruit fly population in a region. Yeah. But we can't always achieve that with mm. 4,000 individuals mm. in suburbia, no, whereas so four true. growers yeah, in an yeah, yeah, yeah. agricultural yeah, region yeah, yeah, is much, yeah, yeah. much, much easier to get that cooperation and, and collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was some – in an episode last year, ABC Landline did a story on some of the technology they're starting to use in larger-scale agriculture to – uh, detect fruit fly, and they, it's like this hardcore computer technology that'll that I'll have to try to find the link and share it with everyone. But the there were de- basically de- detectors yeah. out throughout the orchard that if a fruit fly was detected by one of these thingamabobs, it sent a message back to a computer and they could I- identify where, what corner of an orchard within a certain radius the fruit fly had. So we have about 150 of those traps right. in the Yarra Valley. Um, yeah. We are downscaling because our funding is downscaling, but not by choice. But these particular fruit fly traps have that bioimpedance sensor and as the fruit fly walks into the trap uh it can distinguish but using its its weight and its footprint and other um patterns that the software has developed and learned about and they can distinguish on whether that's a a fly or a wasp walking in or whether it's a queensland fruit fly and i get an alert on my phone and i know that i've got to send an inspector out to sylvan and Mm. and we need to start doing some delimiting exercises Mm. so um, it is out there another trap that we use has a camera in the top 
And um, at the moment, we check that to see what's in the bottom of the trap. So it's saving us from driving out hundreds of kilometres each week. Um, there could be AI in there in the future. Yeah, we'll see yeah, where that, that, that yeah. goes. So that would be really handy to save me checking that. Because it is a distinctive little fly. Yeah. When you have a close look at it. Yeah. yeah. So that would be something that AI would, yeah, would be really useful for. It would, even if that is not perfect, you would actually have a warranted visit. Mm. Yeah, like it's, it's worthy of that. Yeah. You've already saved yeah. hundreds of dollars by not going out there every week for the whole year. Um, that's fantastic. But that, that's sort of a little bit out of reach for home gardeners. Mm. That's more of a commercial yeah. management, get on it early. That's awesome. Um, but nothing beats being in your garden and checking your fruit and checking your fruit fly traps. And, you know, at this time of year, you should be checking your coddling moth traps as well. So being in your garden and, and having a, a trap inspector in the field, it, it's a dual fold or triple fold purpose while they're out there. Yeah. So the idea with this net, you, you, you peg it down to the ground, do you? you peg it, it down to the ground or secure it to the base of the tree. Oh, okay. Um, if you're pegging it down to the ground, it's really important to make sure that you don't have fruit fly pupae in, or larvae in the ground from a previous crop. Okay, so they overwinter in the mulch. No, they don't overwinter in the mulch, but, for example, if you were to go from tomatoes and have then a tree ripening soon after, a lot of permaculture has that integrated planting approach, the, the larvae from that one generation could, could hatch and then be in your netting. So it's just make sure that whatever you do below. So they overwinter as adults. So I can see that look on your face. You're like, hang on, how do they overwinter? So they overwinter as adults. Um, the female fruit fly in particular is quite good at overwintering because she can store all of that protein that she's consumed and she can also decompose her eggs and source that protein to keep her alive over winter. Fascinating. God. I thought, like, pupae is the stage that would be through the wintertime and, and then they're to emerge with uh, their chill fly. No, it's yeah. an overwintering fly. So yeah. she'll start to hide out under the eaves of yeah. buildings. Yeah. She'll curl up in a camellia leaf yeah. or a lemon leaf oh, and stay gracious. out of the cold. I just liken it to when yeah. I describe it yeah. to people. If you were stuck in the wilderness, where would you go and seek refuge at night? In the, the big open field or the, the sandy desert? Or would you go and seek shelter in amongst the bush and the trees? And that, that's where it's warmer over the, overnight. I want to I keep going with these guys, but we must remind listeners that you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster, your host for this morning. And in the studio I have Graham Morrison, Bronwyn Cole and Evan Golke. Now there's a couple of text messages um, to get through. Evan, are you able to find a picture of the tomato technique that you were talking about? Uh, I can have a look. All but right. uh, if I haven't got one, I'll send one to you. you Thank can you. Put it on. Yep. Had a, had a listener message in. Yep. Um, uh, Rushall Community Garden on Saturday, the 14th of October, is holding its annual open day. So you can head down there to see what the plot holders have been growing. Um, and pick up some gardening tips just before spring. They're also going to be having a fruit and vegetable sale that day, cakes and other treats as well. Uh, John from Bond Beach has texted in. Uh, they had a huge harvest from their olive tree this year. The tree is getting too big, so they cut it back hard into the wood, back to the main structure. Have I made a big mistake, he asks. <laughs> 
I was saying no. No, no, no. You just might not have as much fruit next year. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You can prune olive trees <clears throat> really hard the and they'll come back. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and they'll yeah. come back. Like, like, like a citrus tree, you can really chop, chop hard into, in, into you know, uh, and the, the, the branches on the left might be uh, uh, an inch thick sort of thing, mm-hmm. even go a bit further than that and they shoot out and mm. olives the same. Yep. Yeah. I think the key with that, and it's a little bit like maintaining hedges, you don't do that cut where you want it to be, where you want the ultimate height to be. Okay. Absolutely. You do it, you do it further. lower. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you might do it yeah, half sure. a metre lower or, you know, yeah, if it's, yeah, that, for example, that, that, a potassium hedge is the classic. Yeah, you know, people sure. just let them go crazy, oh, yeah. as yeah, ugly yeah, as they sure, are. Yeah. Um, the, the, the idea is you cut them about a metre below where you want the ultimate height to be because otherwise it's just too hard to keep cutting in the same spot because you've got all that very heavy wood, all that very thick wood. Same with olive trees, lemons, all of those things. Absolutely. And and olives often, many varieties will fruit every second year. Uh, So you might not get as much fruit next year, John, uh, but... But yeah, it'll come back. It'll and you'll be get fine. you'll get a lot of regrowth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's probably sure. worth just thinning that regrowth yeah, yeah, yeah. out yeah. as it sure. comes back yeah, through yeah, the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, question for Bronwyn: um, Should local councils be actively removing existing fruiting street trees? Our argument is that fruit trees can be kept, providing they're managed. So my question for that council is. What are you doing to manage them? Mm. The Yarra Rangers is actually actively through our fruit fly grant uh, removing weed species such as prunus and yeah. things that have yeah. by chance or optimistically yeah. grown somewhere. Um, so it, we're encouraging landowners or land managers on their own private property to either net a tree or harvest that fruit and never let it fall or uh, even be part of a baiting program just depending on where that pressure is. But it, it is council's responsibility to maintain that tree. And if it's harbouring disease or pest, then it's their obligation to do something about it. So I think definitely a proactive approach is better. Mm, yeah. and, and maybe work with that council to say, well, this is a risk, this is happening in our area, can we replace it with something yeah, sure, more Indigenous sure. to the area? I think, I think the culprit there would be Prunus, Prunus nigra. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they have the little little fruits and I, 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 I walk in my old age and so often you see the fruit laying all over the ground sort of thing and it, it would be a, one of the problems around. Some of the ornamental yeah. pears are doing that and even in yeah. Tatura I know okay. that they've got sure. yeah, pe- ornamental pears and some of them fruit and some of them don't. Mm. So but they, they yeah, are a sure. carpet of fruit. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it only it, they only take such a small bit of fruit to yeah. host a fruit fly. So yeah, yeah I, I do put it back to the councils to yeah, manage yeah, what yeah, they yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. or be proactive in changing that that streetscape over so that they're not having to manage it. So I think you've just answered that because they won't be proactive and manage it. That that just won't happen. They they can't even manage. It depends. Have they like got they just John don't have them? the money. <laughs> they don't have the money to, to go around and manage. So I think it's going to be a case of encouraging to to put appropriate species in yeah, and yeah. pull out because yeah, they really yeah, just yeah, don't have true. the yep. ability so to we've, maintain. So we've worked that with the Yarra Rangers Council, which is where my program is based, mm. is that they're electing not to plant those fruiting species yeah. as street trees because yeah, we're such an agricultural or horticultural dependent mm. shire. Mm. Um, I, I know that that's been a, a long-term goal 
but um, we still have a lot of straight trees and chance trees. So what what would they be? Like ornamental pears, you say? Ornamental pears, uh, particularly the, the plums that grow, mm-hmm. um, cherries, apricots, um, even some apple trees. You know, people like to throw an apple core out the window. Yeah. With, the Yarra Valley has got such wonderful fertile soils and the rainfall mm-hmm. that those chance opportunity trees actually do get a good chance and yeah. they do fruit yeah, compared right. to some yeah, other sure. parts of Australia. Yeah. But blackberries are the main one. Okay, really? they're a bad wild one blackberries. as well. So February is when I find the most fruit fly in the Yarra Valley. We had 40... Around 40 fruit fly detections last summer, which is 40 more than we want. But a lot of them are around February, and that's when our wild blackberries, and there's blackberries everywhere. So, again, councils don't have money. No, no, they don't. Like, if if, if blackberries could be controlled by councils, they would have done it years ago. Yeah. But But they they really rely on landholders. They um, do rely on landholders or volunteer programs or land care. But we've just got to get rid of the blackberries, get rid of those hosts. That's great. That's good to know. With your Yarra Valley, a lot of grapes grown there. Do the fruit fly get into grapes? Under the extreme pressure, they do. So if they, uh, for example, had a peach tree to go to, they'd much prefer to go to that. But sometimes the grapes get so turgid and their skins are so slippery that the fruit fly can't get a good enough grip on that grape surface and then she can't inject her egg successfully with her ovipositor, which is her little tube at the end of her body where she lays her egg out of and injects it in. Um, but there was a case back in 2008 in the Hunter Valley where there was fruit fly pressure was so bad they actually did go the wine grapes and uh, from there they didn't necessarily breed but they all lost their crop due to botrytis because of that secondary infection of the wound. So table grapes in Mildura are hit there um, as opposed to wine grapes and another um, attitude I guess is that oh we don't need to worry about that because we're compressing ours and we're, we're just using the juice, essentially. This is sort of like a, a, a wine grape theory. but Compressive thing. <laughs> it, it's probably not enough where it's affecting taste. Mm. But if it got so bad that it started to affect taste, that's when I think we'd have some, some real concern. But we have a lot of wineries trapping for fruit fly just as a general surveillance because they would prefer not to be in that position where they're having yeah, to spray insecticides. God. A lot of wineries are trying to be significantly reduce their insecticides that they have the opportunity yeah. to use. Yeah. As an autistic, they tried yeah. to get away from that. When I was up in Hawk, Hawkesbury Agricultural College for four, four years, where I was le- lecturing up there, they had fruit fly this back in the 70s and uh, they sprayed some pretty gas- ghastly insecticides there like uh, phos- phosphone and labacid, I think, organic phosphate sort of thing. And uh, one of our... Uh, Men on the, on the garden became over his blood tests and he was you know inhaled, inhaled too much of the, the poison and is in trouble, and uh, you know the, that fruit fly thing. It's for people probably are too sensitive. You see a maggot, you think it's a horrible thing, don't you? It sort yeah. of you know upsets you when it's sort of 
come from the fruit probably if you swallowed a few wouldn't it hurt probably <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right it just yeah. adds to your protein level that's <laughs> yeah, what I was getting out earlier fruit yeah, price not right. issue at all <laughs> 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 I'm just going to put those phone numbers out again if you want to call in and ask any questions there's a couple of text messages I'm going to get to in a second 94190155 the text line is uh, 0488809855 I have Graham Morrison Bronwyn Cole and Evan Golke in the studio with me this morning. Uh, comment from Cameron in Adelaide. Last year, Adelaide had a ban on fruit transport between the suburbs until the fruit fly outbreak was over. Mm, really? So they're at a very much lower level that they can do that sort of targeted. Yeah, their whole state is supported by their state government, They've got which yeah. is protecting the fruit growing industries there. And their fruit fly right throughout the state is still at that eradicable level. Mm. Whereas Victoria, even though the Yarra Valley is somewhat similar numbers or less, we don't have the ability to do that roadblocks and, and uh, eradicate. There's just too many opportunities for yeah. fruit fly to get in. So that's why our approach is about just early detection and rapid response. Um, but, yeah, kids weren't even allowed to take fruit to school in their lunch boxes oh, really? during their fruit fly outbreak in Adelaide. That They, they have people coming out from, from that government program and they strip your fruit and, um, you know, there are fruit fly controls placed right throughout that metro area. Yeah, I know from the, the the road from Mildura into Adelaide is is heavily um, monitored. Yes, and every car, every car, I think. Yep. Yeah, you have to get rid of everything. So, so just a tip to Victorians who are thinking of travelling to Adelaide: don't take any fruit or get rid of your fruit at the volunteer bins on the Victorian side. Once upon a time, when we were all kids, you used to be able to volunteer your fruit at mm. the Sojuna roadblock or at, at the roadblock. Nowadays, South Australia will fine you if you get to that roadblock with oh, fruit. Really? They're sick it's of being ignored. Yeah, really. yeah. And it's like $1,485 or something hey, ridiculous. Don't muck around. Yeah, right. So yeah. use the bins, the donation bins on the Victorian side or as most of us have probably been put through, uh, yeah. sit there until you've eaten it all. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's right. <laughs> it's interesting yeah. though, the fruit fly zone going up into you know Mildura and those areas these days yeah. is just not policed at all. No. I mean, it hasn't been for a long time. That's Victoria's because they're in horrific. suspension and they've got more fruit fly there than some places outside of that fruit fly exclusion zone. Mm. But they're still maintaining that fruit fly exclusion zone for monitoring, management, and they're also Mediterranean fruit fly free as well. Right. So that's important to, to prove to exporters mm. that we are very actively working there. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, once, once essentially Victoria became established with fruit fly a lot of those border patrols stopped on our side Mm. and a lot of it's volunteer too just due to the finances we have to run it and and that's why our program with the three regional coordinators is so important is because we can teach people the right thing to do and i think a lot of people have proven that that's just as effective if not more effective than Mm. having a policeman standing on the corner Mm. 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 yeah but uh, just so i I read through a bit of uh, Bronwyn's literature there and in my book you're such an important person and to hear that funds might be cut, cut from our government, that, 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 that's a terrible thing. It hurts my heart because I've seen what it can do in New South Wales uh, uh, up there. It's a horrible thing. It's a big cost to our community. We have little, 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 less fruit and I bow to you and I... 
you know, it, 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 it's so, so, so important, important to people that they are aware. You know, I can see people going for a picnic sort of thing up into Yarra Valley and, and, and taking some for, for fruit from their garden sort of thing. And it just, you know, it can get away. Mm. The, the, the public have got to be aware of it, haven't they? You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> I think the public need to be aware of a lot of pests and disease that are in their garden. Oh, yeah. It, mm. They, they uh, mm. can be easily harboured and yeah. you, we're not experts in our... In our backyards, that's why we listen to radio shows like this to learn a bit more. Yeah, true. Um, but I certainly don't know everything about the pests and disease of everything in my garden, so I'd, I'd no, appreciate no. those resources. But the about fruit that. floor is a bad, bad one, you know. It, it's it's got to be controlled. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I've got a text message coming again from John from Bond Beach. Uh, a little comment, thanks to 3CR and Bronwyn for such informative radio um, and the deep dive into fruit fly management is fantastic. Can't think of any other public garden forum that would have such depth of detail and knowledge. So thank you, panel. Yeah, that's so thanks, good. Guys. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll send that to my boss. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More funding. Yeah. <laughs> um, Di McKenzie, our producer, has messaged in saying that the September Gardening Australia magazine has step-by-step training of vine tomato upper string on page 24. Oh, there you go. If listeners want to go out and grab that. Um, And another text message, uh, great and valuable info, read the fruit fly. Thank you all, a million. And, yes, Evan should write a book. (laughs) He's a landscaper like no other. Is your mum writing this? (laughs) He's a landscaper like no other with knowledge and experience of what is beneficial for our next generations. And good segue into a next question is what about your travels? Where have you been lately? Uh, Well, I have been to New Haven. Does anyone want to hear about this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah tell so, us. There's you um, showing me some very cute videos before the show started. Mm. So um, I was I was lucky enough to go as a volunteer to New Haven, which is one of the Australian Wildlife Conservancy sanctuaries. So I, I go to a few of these. So I think last time I was on, I was talking about Scotia, yeah. where I was. Um, <clears throat> New Haven, uh, every year, do a black-footed rock wallaby survey of the escarpments that are on their property. So their property is um, about 260,000 hectares. So it's just a little one. Yeah, Yeah, it's just a little one. A backyard. (laughs) And there's about uh, five or six escarpments, decent-sized escarpments that Mm. pop out. It's sort of a little bit like the McDonald Ranges. I mean, it's very close. It's it's on the northern side of the McDonald Ranges. It's about five and a half hours sort of northwest of Alice. Is that all? <laughs> yeah. Well, when you turn off the Tanami Road, you still have about two hours to get to the operations area. You actually go through an Aboriginal area, a land land uh, holding, which is now also managed by AWC. So, and they're connected. So there's over six hundred and fifty thousand hectares that they're Gosh. that they're uh, managing, managing for fire control, <coughs> managing cats in particular. Um, at, at New Haven, they have a, a 10,000 hectare exclosure area, so a fenced area for um, predators, which encompasses um, one, of the, one of the large escarpments. And uh, we actually got to stay within there. So there was these tent, this tent area and we, we, were, we were staying in there which was fantastic because at night, and I was just showing a little video, we had these little Mulgaras coming into where we were eating, picking up scraps. They're t- kind of like, they're sort of rat size. 
and they have a, a little cute, straight, cute. <laughs> little, yeah, little straight tail with a like a painted black end on it, and they they buzz around at night. Uh, we'd also have um, Spinifex hopping mice come in and buzz around at night, and uh, and they they are the cutest little mice. They're little mm. plump mice that have an extremely long tail. It would be fifteen centimeters long with a fluffy end, <laughs> and so they kind of hop around and buzz about. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, walking out to where our tents were, uh, which was a little bit of a walk out at night, um, you'd often run into a marla, which is like a, a, a miniature wallaby, um, n- not even as tall as your knee, even when they're standing up mm. with little T-Rex arms, yeah. as you <laughs> said, these, these little plump wallabies. And there was one there that just kept, seemed to always be around these eremophilas that, that were flowering and they were munching munching those or picking up what was off the ground there. Um, so all these animals that you just don't see otherwise because you're in this exclosure, you're in this predator-proofed area. Um, so the black-footed rock wallaby survey happens every year. So it's basically going around counting poo. So I am now a poo Is that expert. What you were doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I'm a poo expert now. Um, scattering, we were calling it. Uh, <laughs> um, and they have uh, 215 sites within these with on these escarpments that that um, you need to go and check. So it's a one meter, so square meter, of area where you basically count the poo and you're separated into whether it might be euros or whether it's black-footed rock wallabies, whether it's fresh, whether it's old, whether it's ancient. So you've got all these categories that you, you sort of go through. So we did that for just under two weeks. Um, and it was fascinating. So the escarpment uh, within the exclosure, I mean, it was mind-boggling how much scat there was. <laughs> uh, once you got out of the exclosure into the other areas, um, there was less, but it was still present, which was which was fabulous. Yeah. We actually saw a black-footed rock wallaby on the first day, the only day I didn't carry my three-kilo camera because <laughs> 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 I wasn't sure how hard the climbing was going to yeah. be, um, which was a shame. So we only saw one, but it was a female and a pregnant female. Um but it was just a fascinating place. So one of the escarpments, so the idea is, is you, you walk up the escarpment, so you walk up through the rockfall um, and you get up to the base of the cliffs and then you essentially walk along the base of the cliffs, which is great for plants as well, yeah. of course. Um, and uh, so there was one occasion where we were going along um, uh, Rob's, Rob's Hill, which is one of the escarpments to the west of the property, uh, Western operations, and uh, I don't know if we were disturbing the same pair of barn owls or whether we were seeing more than w- more than one pair. But we were going along, and these barn owls would come out, you know, because you'd be climbing up onto the rocks, mm. and they'd fly over your head. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, it was just beautiful. I mean, to see barn owls during the day is so unusual. I've yeah. seen them at night at Scotia, but I've never seen one during the day. They're the most beautiful bird. And I've got I've got a great photo on my Instagram um, page of them. I wouldn't have thought that they would have lived out there. Wow, you'd be surprised what lives out there. Yeah. So one of the things that used to live out there is brush-tail possums. Huh. So brush-tail possums were so across Australia, it's incredible, and they certainly lived on the escarpments. And one of the reasons they know that some of these animals lived there, for example, the golden bandicoots, which have just been released into the exclosure area there, um, they know because 
when you, when you climb up into these areas, particularly where the bow, uh, the owls roost, there's these little balls that that um, oh, I've just completely forgotten the name of what they're called pellets, mm. little pellets that they they throw up. So they'll eat lots of little animals. They'll eat beetles and bird, little little birds and little uh, marsupials and so on. And then whatever they can't digest, it sort of gets formed into a little ball about two centimetres by a centimetre and they cough it out. And so I was going to bring one in, but I, I forgot. Um, and so one of the reasons they know what animals were there, because years ago they collected a whole lot at New Haven um, and it took many, many years for the analysis to happen. But you can analyse what's in there because there's little bones, mm. there's little feet, yep. there's little skulls, the, you know, all these things that they, they, they don't digest. So they know what, what lived there. So, and brush-tailed possums is one of them. So brush-tailed possums will be reintroduced into, into New Haven and, and other areas, you know, you know, Bush Heritage doing similar, similar yep. things. I wonder why they let their doom... Um, cats... <laughs> Cats, yeah, yeah cats. Really. Cats are yeah. the the big nemesis. Yeah. Uh, foxes as well, but yeah. cats. Yeah. They they are horrendous. Yeah. Um, uh, domestic cats are great, and yeah. you know I, I acknowledge they have you know yeah. you know many people love them and yeah. and they're they're terrific yeah. domestic animals. But when they're in the wild, mm. they are just killers. Yeah. And and uh, the, you can cut open a, a, a cat and find many many little yeah. marsupials in their stomach. Yeah. Oh, so they, they kill millions, get, millions get, and millions and millions. Uh, so talking about your your uh, traps, the AI may be being used. I mean, there is a new thing that's being been produced, um, which is a, a little gadget that squirts poison onto cats, and it recognises them by by AI to know how them how they move, how they look, so on, and they'll squirt them on squirt it on and then because they're in really persistent cleaners they love cleaning themselves cats yeah, okay. so they, they'll clean that off and, and that will kill them that's just being released i think in wa they've started like the trials have been going on for many years but actually it's being put out into wa now mm. um but yeah look new haven is the most sensational place i'll start putting Did some you? plant photos yeah, on, on my do. instagram I, I i haven't got around to it yet I've, I've done a few animals tag the gardening show in them we can yep. get Liz to reshare them yeah yeah um uh, did you fly up or did you drive up uh, i flew it was quite short notice to know that it was happening and, yeah. and to get the gig um so, so I, how do you I, I get flew. the gig great question <laughs> <laughs> where do i apply how do you get the gig? yes look what um type go, of people are taking in there there are lots of opportunities with Australian Wildlife Conservancy for volunteering. I know through October in South Australia, they're, they're doing some um, bilby surveys in South Australia, as well as some burrowing betong surveys, which means you, you're out all night and you trap them. Um, and I think they mostly use peanut butter because they love peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they trap them, count them, weigh them, do all that. So if you go onto the Australian Wildlife Conservancy website, there is an opportunities tab. And they now have this fabulous um, uh, app that you can put on your phone. I think it's also an app that other organisations use uh, where it lists all of the opportunities that are available. And you put, you fill it out, fill out with your skills, 
um, and fitness levels and all of those sorts of things and and then you, you can apply for things. And then what they do is they will go through all those potential volunteers and sort of try and select people that they think will work together as a team. So you don't Wild necessarily... Sorry? The wildlife tinder. Yeah, yeah, wildlife tinder, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, and, and so it, it's, it's a fabulous uh, way to get into the, um, into the outback or into these, these places. These places are like being in huge national parks with no people and lots of animals, which is quite bizarre. Mm. Um, so, yeah, absolutely encourage anyone to do it. I mean, obviously donating is the other way to help because mm. they are yeah. literally completely run on donations. Mm. Um, so if you if you can you know spare a couple of bucks to donate to AWC, yeah. you know that would be great as well. You can also set up, and a lot of a lot of um, not pro- not for profits do this as well. You know, a monthly direct debit yep. donation, and it can be something as little as two dollars or five dollars or as much as you want. Yeah, uh, and they're easy to set up yeah. as well. And yeah, absolutely. And then you they just... have a, a you know a constant stream of income. Mm through that process yeah and you can just learn so much um, when you're out there because you are surrounded by like-minded people so you you know at night you might sit around a fire talking to half a dozen ecologists about something it's just living <laughs> the know? dream evan like, <laughs> there's nothing like being surrounded with mm. around yourself with like-minded people yeah, it's, it's just true, true. it's extraordinary yeah right yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so um, yeah look by all means, um, jump on their website, see if you can, uh, you know, get a v- volunteer gig. Um, you know, it can be hard work. You know, mm. you know, it was it was really hard work doing the Rock Wallaby survey. I mean, we were walking up to probably eight or nine kilometres a day. Wow. You know, some some days you were having to walk a couple of k's just to get from where you could park a four wheel drive to mm. to actually get to the escarpment. Then you'd have to scale the escarpment and then walk along it. Um, the last day we did it. It was on our only north-facing escarpment, which we didn't we didn't realise. Oh, that was um, hot! And it was really hot, like mm. really hot. We ran out of water halfway along and had to had to abort uh, for the day um, because it was just so hot. So it's hard work, you know. It's not it's not um, it's not always easy, but well, the, the Scotia, rewards are amazing. And the Scotia. Um where you were earlier in the year, that was a pretty hard. Was it weed control you were doing there? There's a lot of weed control going. I, when I go up there, I do a lot of welding and things like that, fixing things. Yeah. Um, but there is a big effort going on at the moment at Scotia for weed control. Mm. So I think it's called the Weed Warriors on the Opportunities app. Yeah. Um, and they're probably still looking for people because they've had such good rain. So there's lots of those annual weeds coming up, like Ward's weed in particular is one they... They try and uh, uh, eradicate um, and uh, wild uh, sage and and these sorts of things. Mm. So there's a lot of um, lot of work going on to to sort of really clean up those sites because of course a lot of these sites are old farms or old cattle stations or sheep stations and so on. So yeah, you, know, you have all the all the things that come along with that, yeah. all the yeah. weeds that that, that yeah, come along yeah, with that. True. So, yeah, so not all the uh, volunteering opportunities are, are loads of fun. You know, mm. you might be out there spraying um, spraying weeds, you know, for, for a couple of weeks. But the rewards and the, the downtime that you have with these people is is, is fabulous. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You see it, see it in a, 
Evan's eyes, he sp- they, they spark, sparkle they when he's talking about it. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's quarter to nine. We're here for another half an hour. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster, and in the studio with me this morning is Evan Golke, Graham Morrison, and Bronwyn Cole. Um, I want to talk to you guys about pruning fruit trees in a second, but there's just a couple of – a text message to get through and a question. Um, uh, Doug from Altona North, who – sent in a question before and he's also one of our glorious producers has just sent photos of a prunus nigra and olives in his street to uh, the hobson bay council inquiring about their fruit fly control program so they must be a little bit um he wants to get rid of them so he's Mm. emailed the council so he says thanks ron well done. Uh, and All the they- councils are going to be going, oh, my God, why did you say <laughs> <Yes>. that? <laughs> no, we all have to share this responsibility. So yeah. um, if you're expecting your council to do something, make sure that your backyard's spotless as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, 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 there's all a, a responsibility, yeah. collective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, question, does fruit fly affect bananas? I believe it does. I haven't seen it here, but uh, it is on the host list. Mm. Yeah, Certainly one of the fruits you can't carry through. Yeah. Okay. Mm. okay. Now, Bronwyn, you mentioned um, earlier about pruning being a big control. Graham, I'm sure you've done a lot mm. of fruit pr- fruit tree yeah, pruning yes, in yeah, your life. Right, yes, it doubles as a cultivation technique to get more fruit, but it also is a pest and disease control as it's well. It's really hard to get one of these nets over a 40-foot apricot tree yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, good, good question there. For, uh, on this program for years, I've been ad- advocating dwarf Trees, yes, and I think in in your literature, there, Bronwyn, you were saying about don't have a tree in your fruit tree in your garden that produces more fruit than you need. Yeah, and there's a lot of good things about it. You know, generally, a a dwarf fruit tree gives you gives you sufficient sufficient uh, fruit. You don't want a whacking big apple tree that you know they're they're dropping everywhere and you're not 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 using the fruit. You've got a dwarf dwarf tree. You 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 can uh, thin the fruit. You 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 can uh, uh, prune the fruit. You, You you can Harvest the fruit without climbing up a climbing up a ladder. Uh, you, you can net you net net net, net, net these fruit. And I just just the other day, I, I mean, yesterday actually, I went up to Bunnings and I thought Bronwyn's going to talk to, to talk about fruit fly netting. So I had a look at what what they had there, and I there was a, there's a, a piece ten ten meters by ten meters, and the and the actual aperture was was five millimeters. Yeah, that's your wildlife yeah. safe netting. I see. Okay. So you're not yeah. allowed to use that ten mil diamond net to keep birds and possums off your plum trees anymore. Oh, is that right? Because yeah, uh, yeah, there's right. too much chance of wildlife getting caught yeah, in it, according to... And although it's, it's white taught. rather than black that they used to... Uh, yeah, yeah, and so. they're worried about the yeah. fruit bats and things flying into black netting at night. So as much as an orchardist daughter is aware of these issues and is quite frustrated by some of the decisions, the reasoning is for that 5 mil netting is that it is less likely to get the, you know, the, the off-target mm. things caught up in there, see, um, yeah. but it won't keep fruit fly out. No, so I've got this one online yes, and yes. it was sent to me. Yeah, um, yeah. If it's not at your nursery, please ask for them to get it in. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I yeah, know yeah, that yeah. Uh, Edendale Garden Stockett, um, mm. they've been working with us significantly over the last few yeah, years yeah, to yeah. get products in because not a lot of our retailers have fruit fly no, products they don't. No, no, because no, we yeah. don't have fruit fly. So it's, it's at that. <laughs> well, it's at that. Uh, is it a? Is it a cusp? Where we we don't have it, we don't want it, but we don't necessarily have the turnover commercially to stock the product. So that's why I advocate for looking online for yeah, your yeah. for your traps and for your yeah, netting, like or, or yeah. ask to get it in because if that, you that, need that, it, someone else will. Very mm. fine mesh mesh you can see on that uh, that the, 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 the netting that you've bought bought in there. Uh, certainly, a fruit for any, any insects not going to get through that. Yeah, no, it is uh, insect yeah. mesh. Yeah, it's okay. fine, finer than. Um, than fly screen. Yeah. Well, this yeah. one is um, the the two mil by two mil that is also available on the roll and in box what they call box nets because they're they're pre stitched. We find that the two mil by two mil is actually much better, and you don't get as much of your long lanky um, limbs that you are probably meant to be training or pruning off, but they don't get caught in the netting as much. Um, But I strongly advocate for under your netted area or whatever you're planning in your garden to espalier it. Or, yeah. or if it's not dwarf, yeah. control it. That's, that that's good, fruit good, on good, along an espalier um, yeah. like yeah. limb or yeah. direction yeah. is actually going to be more fruitful than yeah. what's growing up. Yeah. If it's growing up to the sky, yeah. its yeah. job yeah. is to be the solar panel, not produce yeah. fruit. Yeah. So yeah. it's going yeah. to be quite vegetative. It, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. holding yeah. it down. Yeah. It's like yeah. oh, crap. Yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. I might not make it. So I better produce fruit. You're better off doing a heavier prune after harvest and then a lighter prune while the for the deciduous ones while they're dormant because and correct me if I'm wrong guys um, if you do a heavier prune while these deciduous trees are dormant all that stored energy has gone back into the root system and the main trunks as soon as spring comes around there's so much energy they just go straight for the sky which is sort of an older practice that I think a lot of gardeners have done in the past and moving towards this heavier prune once you've yeah. harvested all the fruit off and then just a lighter formative yeah. prune yeah. over winter. Yeah. I do a bit of both. It depends whether I want to do a structural change and whether I want to create that vigour yeah. or whether it is that shaping and management prune later on or to let more light and air into the tree mm. in, in that harvest period. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Chloe, I grew up in an orchard in Doncaster and I think two, two, probably two months of the winter, winter about all we did was pr- pr- prune our deciduous fruit, 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 fruit trees. Mm. And uh, it, like you said, in the olden days, it was pruned when they're deciduous. You don't touch them in the... But I think more and more, like like, like you say, it's uh, uh, yeah, a, summer, a summer pruning after after you've have, have, harvested your fruit is a good time to do it, mm. particularly you cut, cut out these water shoots that sh- 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 shoot up and uh, just a n- nuisance thing unless you want a, a, a new limb in that particular particular area. But uh, uh, summer pruning is, you know, the, commercially it's being done quite a lot. It's, it's, it's a, a big expense, of course, to have the, the two prunes a year, but it's mm. more and more, more and more. It's, it's uh, beneficial for the mm. for the deciduous trees. So, with some of your apples, you would um, you wouldn't be able to do it after harvest, really, because they they wouldn't be like it's getting quite yeah. late. Some of them are June, you know, mm. May, yeah, May, they're sort of yeah. finishing up their fruiting. Yeah, so would that, you do that point, yeah. earlier on, yeah. on those apples? I'd, I'd be looking them. at that light and air aspect of that 
growth mm. time where those where that fruit's mm. growing. It's like, well, what do I want to stay? What do I want to go? Mm. What do I have to protect? What's diseased? What it, it's yeah, it's pretty yeah. much. It's a good, a good, lot good, of good question. Sorry, yeah. and I was thinking more dessert. Stone fruit, I'm trying to say, uh, when I was talking with apple. Sorry, you're about it, but then you, right. you, you go. Yeah. No, uh, it, yeah. it is. It depends yeah. on that tree, on, on that variety. Mm. And yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably like many other gardeners, since when I've got time to do yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the dwarf trees are so yeah. good, because yeah, yeah. at my old place there were some, you know, 40-year-old fruit trees and they weren't the dwarf variety. Yeah. I could not keep up yeah. with the pruning. I, and I'm a, exactly. I'm a lazy gardener so, and I couldn't keep up with yeah. it. <laughs> oh, a massive trees, a lot of love. Mm. and it's dangerous stuff there dangling on a ladder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a call, our first caller for the morning that we must get to. Um, Robert in Mitcham, are you still there? <laughs> yes, most no, certainly I'm still here and uh, I'm uh, glad to hear all the knowledge that's coming through with the, uh, the phone this morning. Welcome back to Graham. <laughs> Thank <But>, uh, you. <laughs> Right, just uh, go back to your fruit fly for a, a little while. I uh, didn't start listening early enough, probably. Does fruit fly attack rotten fruit on the ground or in the compost, or only attack growing fruit? It's a preferred choice of the fruit fly to go to the growing fruit. When she lays her eggs in the fruit, those eggs have to stay there for, say, a week to 10 days so that they can get mature enough to safely leave that fruit and continue their life cycle. Um, we do encourage people to clean up and, and um, destroy the fruit that has fallen on the ground purely so that it doesn't send its smell and, and its attraction to fruit fly that might be in the area. So a fruit fly will figure out, oh, there's fruit in the ground, there might be fruit on the tree, and it will be attracted to your property from somewhere else. Um, <coughs> the only time a fruit fly is likely to go and lay eggs in fruit that's on the ground is in just sheer desperation and there's nowhere else. Okay. So it, it, ha it has preferences like we do. Mm. It prefers stone fruit over some other fruits as well. So it's, it's all a matter of preferences and pressure. But uh, preferably don't let the fruit get to the ground in the first place. Mm. Part of that life cycle of the fruit fly larvae uh, growing inside of the fruit is that it can't stay in there forever. It has to go and find a place to pupate. So that's the next part of its life cycle. Mm. That pupation phase is where it puts a hard case around itself and that's where it morphs from that larvae or that little maggot into the fly that we know it as. So if you never actually let the fruit fall from the tree to the ground, it can't then pupate in the ground. So that hygiene is actually 101. It, it is the best mm. protection about from fruit fly because you are preventing it from its life cycle continuing. So... Mm. Don't let it fall in the first place. And it, that sort of sanitation is a huge prevention for other fungal diseases and bacterial... Yeah, like, yeah. it's just to cover all. Yeah. Good, good word, sanitation. Yeah, yeah. Chooks. They <laughs> help. Chooks. Yeah. They help. Or duck, duck, ducks. <laughs> ducks. Yeah, they, they do help a lot, but not enough to be 100%. Right. And that's what we're teaching a lot of our growers is that none of these systems or methods that we use are 100%. We're not going to get 100% of the fruit flies with traps. We're not going to get 100% of the fruit flies with the protein bait. Mm. We may not keep 100% out of them with netting, although it is very good. We're not going to get 100% of the fruit flies out of the ground with chooks. Mm. 
and we're not definitely not going to get 100% of the fruit flies with any cover spray. So they're all our options available to us. Mm. It's just a numbers game and employing as many of those techniques as possible to get that thorough coverage of that fruit fly. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, are you saying also that if there was rotten fruit, uh, it, it shouldn't be put in the compost? That's right because you're just advancing that larvae being able to go into that pupa phase. If you do find or suspect that there's fruit fly larvae in the fruit that you're dealing with, put it in the microwave or boil it in a pot. Or the other one is to put it in the freezer in a bag and uh, leave it to get solid over, over a couple of days, depending on the volume that you're putting in there. What if you buried it? You can. It would have to be very, very deep, and the soil that you put back on top of it would actually have to be compacted. So, so they'll dig. They'll dig. Their they way they out. will burrow their mm. way out from a, mm. a a shallow area of loose soil because that's where they like to pupate normally. But if it's deep enough, mm. far enough under, it'll be fine. But I don't really want to dig that hole. <laughs> I'm a lazy gardener too. <laughs> I have been known to cook up the odd batch of fruit that I have examined, and uh, I haven't found anything there. And I've, I've put it in the put it in the pot and put it on the boil, and the kids have rolled their eyes. What are you doing now, Mum? <laughs> there was one lady in Warburton, and bless her cotton socks, she found fruit fly in her lemon tree. So she spent the whole weekend with a big pot on the wok burner on the barbecue mm. and she boiled every lemon on that tree. Oh. And then she thought, well, there's got to come from somewhere. So she boiled the next door neighbor's lemons as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just wheeled the barbecue God. down the road. No, no, she trudged it. She trudged it. But there's no fruit fly in, no fruit road in Wolverton anymore. <laughs> Give Thanks, Carl, you're a legend. Give her a medal. I think the other one they say is put the, the fruit in a black plastic bag hanging in in the sun, uh, sunshine for a couple of weeks and it's supposed to be dead. Do you agree with that one? Or? I agree with that north of the divide. I actually oh, find that very difficult down yeah. where I live. There's too, yeah. far too much chance of feral cats, foxes, rats, birds opening oh, that up. Yeah, yeah, and if that yeah, larvae yeah. hasn't been solarised properly, oh, then it's yeah. potentially already yeah. pupated and then yeah. it's got the chance of breaking yeah. out. So yeah, sure. uh, as much as it is yeah. a, uh, an energy efficient way, it does rely yeah. on a lot of black plastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's great for volume and, again, it's just risk management, but yeah. um, you'd have to be sure that it got hot enough. And yeah. I, We haven't had three summers hot enough to do that. No, not no we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. All right, Robert, hopefully there's a few options there for can you. I, can I just ask one thing? Yeah, go, go for it, yeah. Can you repeat the name of the bait that you were talking about? It, it's a protein bait. Look for a uh, protein bait that's for Queensland fruit fly. I'm sorry, I can't name names. <laughs> that's all right. And those little yellow sticky things that people put in their trees presumably don't do much. Uh, if the fruit fly flies into it, it does. Uh, but you should be potentially looking for a more um, proactive trap that has a protein lure to attract the fruit fly to the trap or a pheromone lure which attracts the male fruit fly to the trap. So I would actually have at least one of each in my own in my garden. You might not be able to say any names, Bronwyn, but I'll drop Bugs for Bugs website. <laughs> Um, they sell to the domestic market, Robert, and they have. There's a lot of information on their website about the Queensland fruit fly. They've got the male annihilation traps, and they've also got the protein bait products as well, uh, which you might want to um, check out their website and buy off them. Well, thank you all once again for a wonderful show. Good on you. You're welcome. Thanks, good, Robert. Good to hear from you. Chat to you soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bye -bye. Bye.
just just uh, an, an, another thing that came up. Uh, oh my goodness, I think it might have gone out of my poor head. Uh, no, uh, the uh, fruit, the dwarf fruit trees that I was talking of, uh, available at Bullion Art, Art and Garden. I when I was last down there, they had over thirty different fruit varieties. As as dwarf uh, fruit fruit trees. Wow! Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. there's so many options yeah. in the dwarf yeah, varieties. Yeah, sure. yeah exactly. that's fantastic. They have some, some fantastic varieties of fajoa trees there as well, yeah, which oh, yes, fruit yeah. fly love. <laughs> so if you're going to go and buy a fajoa tree yeah. from Bullion Art and Garden, please buy a roller netting at the same time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, there's a tree that produces a lot of fruit, and people often donate them. Oh, so they're so, amazing. so just, underrated. Yeah. It's one they're of my favourite. No, that was the sort of tree I used to. No, I, no, no. James When I was a student, and, and a horticultural student, and I was working in this old garden in, on the Yarra in Hawthorne, it had a fajoa tree, and I used to eat that mostly because I was starving. Um, you know, Poor since, student. Since, since that time, I haven't touched them. Uh, yeah. We make fajoa ice cream where we put oh, vodka no, and sure. coconut. Up rum, it's amazing. You're it with all these other things. <laughs> <laughs> Just the other day, I did uh, fajoa and strawberry and chia seed muffins. I've still got fajoas in the freezer. It's amazing. Oh, the kids yeah. must be do so you... thankful. <laughs> they do you, are. Do you peel them and dice them before you put them in the freezer? Or yes. Them in scoop, whole? scoop them out and just put them in, yeah, in, in chunks like like frozen bananas, ready for the ice cream maker. Yeah. I want to put. I want to put. You some... just didn't have a mum to make ice cream for you. That's all. <laughs> I want to put some fajoas in my garden. In my garden at home, Karen Sutherland was on recently, and and she listed a couple of good fruiting varieties. So I wrote them down. So thanks, there's Karen. Large oval. There's Duffy. There's Nam Nametz. Oh, I can't think of it. Mammoth was the one Mammoth. she mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Victoria, I think perhaps. But uh, I was up at Hawkesbury Agriculture. I was t- telling you about. There's a lecture up there, lecture in biology or something. It's got a great big fijoa tree in the backyard, and uh, I said, "You can eat that fruit, you know. You can eat it, you know." <laughs> oh, that's why New South Wales is just overrun with Queensland fruit flies. There's too many fijoas around. Oops. <laughs> and they can get big if they're not they looked can, after. And they can, and they produce so much fruit. <laughs> yeah, oh, gosh, I love. You fijoas. could pay people with fijoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a, a message coming. Olive tree and wheelbarrow nursery in Kew has quite a few dwarf fruit trees as oh, well. So go. thanks, Fern, for saying that. Yep. Um, AB has texted in, best show ever. Thanks, AB. Hey. I reckon some of yours are pretty up there as well. Just because we mentioned like, her book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> She's on the take. <laughs> All right, a question about John Quills from Anne from Up. They've finished flowering. Um, should she feed them now as they die down? Yeah, yeah, you want to look after them now because uh, now is when you produce next year's flowers. So you really want to look after them and keep the foliage as long as possible. A lot, yeah. A lot of people don't like the messiness of it and then cut them off or tie them up. I don't even think tying them up is all that good. Oh, I, I just think just, you've so just got to have them in a spot. Don't run over them with the lawnmower. Probably like, don't no. run over them with the lawnmower. No, because you let it die. Well, they come back, but they might not flower as well. <laughs> it depends how long you leave them. You can do that. But I've done yes. that for about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. Immediately after they finish flowering. When well, they start to look a bit. When they start to look dead. Probably, yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, I'll yeah. just put the worm Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. Yep. You've got to leave them for a while, though, otherwise you just they just degenerate. Because all the nutrients in the leaf will 
drop back down into the bulb. So mm. leave them for a bit if you can yeah. deal with it. Yeah. yeah, or just don't grow them. Yeah. All that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got another not native <laughs> caller on the line. Uh, Max from Thornbury. Good morning. Oh hi, hi. Thanks. Um, I'm just wondering what the panel thinks of um, home homemade fruit fly traps. I've seen recipes from some of the um, state agricultural departments, uh, including um, yeast, sugar, uh, fruit or fruit juice and, and water, um, and also flour. I'm, I'm wondering if the yeast component in that sort of a mixture would do something like the protein um, in the protein baits, or yeah, if there's any yeah, if you've got any um, comments about how effective they are. What you've just described is the perfect analogy of how those traps work. That yeast creates a byproduct, which is a protein, and that protein is what is attracting the Queensland fruit fly, and even some right. other things like maybe like a European wasp or two. So mm -hmm. they do come in mm -hmm. handy. Um, as for effectiveness, I can't say because I haven't done the testing and neither has Agriculture Victoria. They, they do know that the um, ammo cloudy ammonia mixed with the orange juice is effective, um, but yeah. there are loads of other recipes out there. And I do find the Department of Agriculture in Western Australia has a fantastic... Uh, six or seven recipes that they've listed for Mediterranean yeah. fruit yeah. flies. So mm -hmm. all of those can be trialled. I would encourage you to get out there and um, have a crack, see which one works. What sort of container or would you put them in? A lot of people are using uh, old juice bottles. So uh, one of the ones that uh, we promote on our website and we've just learnt it from other people, so it's just mm. an idea. Mm. It's just your 1.25 PET lemonade bottle drill a couple of holes about one third of the height of the bottle down and then your mixture whichever you choose to put inside fill it one third up from the bottom and then hang it in a tree as you would a normal fruit fly trap which is about a meter and a half off the ground Sounds out good. of the direct sunlight because they don't like going into a very hot bottle and um, the other key ingredient with whatever you choose there is usually a drop of dishwashing liquid to reduce the surface tension on that water so that what does go in there for a feed is not able to sit on top of that liquid surface and then they drown. So they are essentially mimicking or doing exactly the same as the commercially available yeast protein traps, um, but you're just doing it at home. And how often would you need to change it over? Well, it depends how many fruit flies you catch, okay. I guess. <laughs> I, I would be looking at that liquid volume and whether it's working. So I'd, I'd be guessing every couple of weeks. Yep. Um, I'd watch it in case rain does get in there and, and elevate that level so the fruit flies might then escape again. And I'd obviously, um, if it was very hot and windy and dry, um, that liquid might decrease, so topping that up. And any fruit fly doesn't work. Uh, sorry, any fruit fly trap doesn't work if it's not hanging. So <laughs> get out there and hang them and check them and, and be proactive and have a crack. And how big would that hole be? Because it could be quite small and it may be... Because you wouldn't want to fill it up with flies or, or would that not happen? Um, the ones that I had at home didn't catch anything, but I don't have fruit fly at home, but mm. they did catch the wasps and I just used a 10 mil drill bit or whatever. Oh, was so quite mouth. big, yeah. yeah. So, so you've got to be European able to let wasps that, will go in. Yeah, well, you've got to be able to let the attractant <coughs> smell out. Mm -hmm. So a small hole might not do that as well as, mm. or as effectively as a larger hole. Mm. 
So, yeah. well, we haven't had European wasps much at our place for the last three years because it's been cool summers. So, mm. I'm, I'm quite. That's yeah. the downside of warm summers. Okay, you can grow your tomatoes and eggplants yeah. and capsicums, but you have so European wasps. Wasps are horrendous. Yeah. Horrendous. Yeah. Does um, that answer your question about the fruit fly traps, though? Um, look, it's that's that's great. Um, th- thank you. I was, I was wondering whether the addition of flour, which is in some of the recipes. I suppose that would help breed up more yeast um, over it's time. It's new to me, um, but I'm but, not going to say um, no. So, uh, yeah, yeah, trial and error and let us know how you go. Okay. All right. All Thanks right. very much. Thanks for calling yeah. in, Max. Yeah. Bye. Bye. No worries. Thank you. Um, text message in from Kim. Um, great show, but I've dozed off, so I'll have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> A hard day at the Yarra Plant Expo and sale yesterday, the Yarra Yarra plant sale um, she said this that sustainable mcleod has heaps of info on fruit fly uh, on their website so it's sustainable mcleod then that's m-a-c um, dot org dot au forward slash queensland dash fruit dash fly that crowd have been absolutely awesome i've been able to mm. help mm. them in many situations but they've also gone and done their own research and their interaction with the community and where, they, where they've come from, wondering what the hell's getting into our fruit, what have we lost, to where they are now is an absolute... It, it's a mm. fantastic story that we tell other people about their efforts. So well done, Sustainable yeah, Cloud. Great. What, what's the website uh, or how do, we contact, how do people find the information that you have? So we're on fruitflyfreeyv.com.au. And fruit pe- fly y <laughs> what <laughs> fruit fly free y v Yarra Valley Yarra Valley oh God. <laughs> say that twenty times <laughs> most people just say ring bron <laughs> <laughs> that's not exactly um, but agriculture Victoria does have extensive information and links as well yeah, yeah. on our website we also have useful links to those other departments uh, in different states because they're a bit more experienced in dealing with fruit fly. Um, you can just pick up loads of information. Just Google Queensland fruit fly. It'll, mm. it'll just mm. go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Mm. Um, someone's text messaged me in saying that BioTrap has fruit fly traps on their website online as well. So that's yeah. BioTrap if anyone wants to check it out. Now, Graham, you brought in a little tub of some fruit. Oh, We've got yeah. about five minutes. My goodness <laughs> Less gracious. Than. Yeah, yeah. Let's well, go through this quickly. I might, might have been there a little bit before. I, I really would like – it was a holiday, if you don't mind, Chloe, and we went to Nor- Norway and Svelbard, Svelbard, Global – Seed Vault. Mm. We, we came across and had a look at the building sort of thing there where we go down. And what a, what a wonderful thing that, that, that is. They du- duplicate uh, these seed uh, uh, vaults, if you like, or seed collections all around the world so that, you know, in uh, a war comes in, natural disasters mm. come in, it's a safe way to go. They've got thermofrost there that keeps the ground at about mi- mi- minus 18 degrees. They're, 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 they've, uh, they've got refrigeration if, that, if it gets a little bit too, 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 too warm. But they're, they're, there's thousands of seed that they have there kept in little uh, tri- tri- triple foil uh, pa- pa- packs. And uh, 
What a what a great facility. The only thing that worries me, it's all about food, and you know that that's fair enough because you don't want the the the, 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 the uh, uh, land to run out of food. So I think we've got to have seed in in these disasters that that can 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 happen and to get them lost in bad. But I would love to see that they would have uh, a, a seed uh, vault for endangered plants in our world. You know, so often, and I read a journal recently where they were, Australia's native plants, the forgotten plants of the world. There's still a lot of them have got to be examined to see what chemicals are in it. You find a chemical in there that can, 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 can cure one thing or other. The, the aspro came from the bark of a silver birch. Mm. And there's so much there. And to, what a disaster it is. Like you and with, 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 with animals, like our plant world as well. We're, we're lo- 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 losing species every, every, every year. Mm. And that, that's a disaster. Well, they take four million years to, through evolution to get get where they are, sort of thing, and they're, they're gone forever. I just want to put put that one in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a there is a, a vault of sorts uh, associated with Kew Gardens. Now I forget what their outlier garden is called. W starts with W. Um, Warms. Whatever yep. you'll find it, but they have they have a wonderful big vault there that that does have a lot of Australian native seed in it. So um, you know, and uh, I think years ago I heard a rumor that Melbourne Botanic Garden might be doing one, but uh, maybe that was just a rumor. Maybe it's needed. Yeah, it is needed. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just put the pressure on them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We might lose our food for another another day. Yeah, but. Uh, I, I have a few things in there. That's a, a, a Orlando Tangelo, not not, not used enough. It, it's it's full of juice and they, they last on the tree without going dry like a lot of the mandarins. Tangelos oh. are yeah, the yeah. best fruit. Yeah, yeah. the best yeah, of the citrus. Right. Yeah, sure. Yep. It's really something about it. a little bit of a tang to that one, mm. yeah. but uh, juicy and uh, just you know like like, like a Seville orange. You got a tree. You look at the colour of that sort of thing. It, it, it's more orange than an orange. It's truly. Orange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the same with the several orange and those really bright orange uh, fruit on, on on the green leaves of the tree. It's a, it's a good sight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 mm. sure. Well, we must leave it at this full stop for this morning. I'm going to stop the wheelbarrow now. Chuck um, us out. Yeah. <laughs> into Thank the compost. You. <laughs> <laughs> with the Thank food flies. <laughs> All three of you, Graham, Bron and Evan, for coming in and sharing your knowledge this morning. It's just been absolutely worth it. Thank you very, very much. To all our listeners, thanks for your messages and calls. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again at 7.30 next week. Have a lovely Sunday. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.